Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is the promotional podcast for the Album Clash Instagram page. I am Jackson Flame, Sense of Rejection. And I am a slightly rouged-faced uh, ginger man, because it's been sunny today. <laughs> See, I like that. It's a bit of an intro there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hello everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. We have the second clash in our beef season. It was my choice, this clash. And today I'm going to take us through Michael Jackson's thriller. Next week, Kev is going to take us through Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. I forgot to say that at the end of last week's mm-hmm. show. It's not just Prince, it's Prince and the Revolution. And uh, yeah, these two didn't didn't get on so well. No, they, they, weren't, they weren't big fans of each other. I mean, the, obviously there's a professional rivalry but yeah they not fans they they weren't now there's loads and loads of stories to get into and i'm not going to get into them all now i'm going to tease them throughout the two shows because there's fucking loads and some of them are absolutely wild as to things happen between these two how it all started how the rivalry all started rolling stone claimed that uh, it started because prince was very jealous of the success of thriller because it took a lot of the limelight away from 1999, which was his breakthrough album, which was released back in 1982, earlier earlier in 1982. So what, six months after that, Thriller comes out and just fucking blows everyone away. Rolling Stone claims that that was the genesis of the rivalry. Now, there are some, some more what you'd call sort of traditional, if you like, connections between the two albums. I mean, they were both the two albums that made their artists global megastars, quite frankly. Both artists and albums which in different ways exploited the emergence of the music video and of cinema in in ways to to promote the album and promote themselves one link between them is they both have iconic songs on them which were written and recorded after the rest of the album was finished because it was felt that they needed just that little bit of something extra but i would like to just start with the first incident that happened between Michael Jackson and Prince on their rivalry, if I may. Please do. I'm, I'm all, all ears on this. So I call this the James Brown incident. In 1983, James Brown played a concert in LA. Both Prince and Michael Jackson attended the gig. James Brown saw Michael Jackson in the crowd, invited him on stage. Michael obliged and basically showed off his vocal talents and amazing dance moves. Michael Jackson then spoke to James Brown and said, you should get Prince up on the stage as well, which James Brown promptly did. Prince, obviously not one to resist the challenge, got up on stage, absolutely shreds the guitar, as you would expect, starts throwing some of his own shapes, and then uh, tries to do a pole dance on a prop lamppost. Doesn't realise that the lamppost isn't fixed to the floor. So the lamppost, along with Prince, goes toppling into the crowd. And Michael Jackson thought it was piss funny. Um, so, yeah, Michael Jackson mocked Prince mercilessly. He's quoted as saying, he made a fool of himself. People were running and screaming. I was so embarrassed. It was all on video. So uh, there is a sequel to that particular story to come 
later on like as a as a start of a rivalry it's not bad because you you've got the godfather of soul in there you've got prince shredding his guitar as only he can do and you've got michael jackson being michael jackson absolutely top notch so it, as i said it's on youtube that clip and i mean it's grainy footage from the 80s fil- filmed on a camcorder you know this is before the days where people could hold ipads in the air to to, to film concerts <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll tweet that link out because it's um it's worth a watch. It has all three of them doing the things that they're all well known for, uh, and then uh, Prince embarrassing himself at the end of it as well, stacking it into the crowd. I mean, I'm, and I'm guessing there is some you you have several more stories to. Oh God, I do. Oh God, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> all right, okay. Shall we do? Can't get you out of my head. I think we should. Uh, do you mind if I go first on this occasion, please, Kev? Go on. Oh, well, I, I don't actually have a shite song in my head. I've got two songs I want to call out, but I don't have a shite song stuck in my head. The the, the song that has been stuck in my head, uh, I'll tell the story as to why. Last weekend, my wife cooked a chicken tagine. It was delicious. Oh, nice. But, but as she was cooking it, I kept singing the song, which really annoyed her, and it's been stuck in my head all week. Tajine Gene, chicken or lamb. Tajine Gene, chickpeas from a can. <laughs> so that's been stuck in my head all week. <laughs> that's great stuff. And if if I'm sure for the listeners, the next time they're they're having a tagine, if they don't sing that, I'll be disappointed. Precisely. Yeah, so Jean Genie by Bowie. I really like it. Uh, and it's been in my head all week. Boss, um, I do have a bad one, and it's really obvious, unfortunately. Go on. So we are recording on the 9th of July. We are in the midst of the European Football Championships over in, in Europe. England have reached uh, the final, which which has brought enjoyment to some of the country, <laughs> um, and unfortunately has led to a revival of the absolutely abhorrent Sweet Caroline. Yeah, what is that about? What? Why? No what? idea. No idea. I absolutely. I've always fucking hated that song. You're not a Neil Diamond fan. No. No, not at all. <laughs> I hate that song and hearing it can't like so it's on advert, it's being sung at the football whilst I'm watching it, it it's being played on the radio and stuff. Neil Diamond is everywhere and I am not pleased. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't have quite the same visceral reaction to that song as you, but but I can't say as I'm particularly fond of it. I do have I do have a good a good goodie. Go on then. It, it's very, I don't tend to listen to a huge amount of commercial radio. And it's not being like particularly esoteric or anything like that. It's because usually when I'm driving about, um, I may well have a podcast on or um, just an album I'm listening to. So I don't listen to it very often. And I heard a snippet of Love Again by Dua Lipa. Now, that's not the song that I'm, I'm bringing to the table here. Because that song samples the great mid-90s number one, Your Woman by White Town. And it's an absolute belter. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, that's White Town. Who, like, who's, who, and like, I found out it was Dua Lipa eventually. But uh, Your Woman by White Town is an absolute belter. And I was dead pleased to, to be reminded of it. And I have been listening to it several times this week. It's a belter. It is a belter. I haven't heard that song for fucking ages, you know. It's a fucking banger. I mean, still good. It, so, like, it, I remember it was a big thing at the time. Oh, it's just this fella who's made it in his bedroom. Like, and obviously in the 90s, that was a massive thing. Now 
with the with the obviously the advancements in technology and stuff and how much more accessible a lot of the, the, the tools are for for making electronic music it's a lot more common but you know back in the time what 25 years ago it was fucking massive that they'd done this thing basically in his room yeah it was it was it was like reported everywhere that this fella had just in his bedroom put together a song which had just come from nowhere and went to number one and was was massive and then dis- then he disappeared he disappeared i mean i'm sure he he may well have had a longer career but I'm not aware of it. Like no, I was aware of, he he arrived with this great single. Did it was at number one for a while, and then he disappeared, and then then that was it. He did. So in terms of my tip of the hat, uh, brand new this. So as Kev said, this is what the 9th of July today. Uh, this is something that was that was dropped yesterday, released yesterday. In fact, uh, it's a song called "When the World Wakes Up" by a Danish duo Takis. That's T. A C H Y S, it's dreamy 80s synth pop. It's just, it could be on the soundtrack to a John Hughes film. It's all kinds of lovely. I mean, that, that, that sounds great. Are you also going to um, have like some kind of moment with Andrew McCarthy in a, in a bay window? <laughs> no, I was thinking more like uh, Judd Nelson uh, walking along a rugby <laughs> field with his fist in the air. <laughs> Oh dear. No, great song. Grand. Well, um, so those are the things that we can't we can't get out of our heads. Obviously, we will tweet the links as usual. Um, and yeah, check them out. And uh, let us know uh what your tagine recipes are. Um dried apricots, strong recommendation from me. Love a tagine. Great stuff. Boss stuff. Yeah, it is. Okay, shall we get on to the clash? Yes, we should. All right, as we did last time, top trumps round. So, Kev, after you trounced me last time. I will let you go first. So you pick the category and you go with your stat first. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try try and win one because I think you may well beat me in several others. I'm gonna try awards because I think it's my strongest. Okay, go on. What awards did Purple Rain win? Two Grammys and was nominated for Album of the Year in '84. One American Music Award, but I've got an Oscar in my back pocket. For uh, best soundtrack. Oh, okay, of course, yeah. Okay, so you got an Oscar. All right, well, sorry, but you lose. <laughs> Thriller, eight Grammys. Fuck. Including album of the year. Eight Grammys is a record for a single album. It also won eight American Music Awards and three MTV Video Music Awards. They don't count. It didn't win the Oscar because it wasn't eligible for the Oscar. But uh, yes, yeah, mate, give us your card. Yeah, but Moon Moonwalker didn't didn't win any fucking Oscars. Well, we're not going through Moonwalk and Bad Eye. We're going through Thriller. So <laughs> fuck off, <laughs> guys. I'm I'm going to get absolutely nailed here. Yeah, I think you probably are actually. Because um, I'm going to. Do you know what? I'm 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 going to go with one of the obvious ones, and I'm going to. I'm just going to go with sales. <laughs> um, <Fuck>. So <laughs> and I know I've won this because uh, okay. So certified sales. 70 million worldwide and there are some estimates to put it at over 100 million worldwide sales what can you do there i mean like it, it does sound absolutely shite in comparison so like yeah with me shite estimated over 30 million <laughs> <laughs> what about certified sales uh 25 million so that's that's <laughs> fucking so when you when we think last week that Sergeant Pepper's absolutely killed Put Sounds and that had 32 million. Yeah, Purple Rain's a fucking huge selling album, but 
the thriller. It's just ridiculous how many copies that sold. Yeah, it it, it is it is just lud- a ludicrous amount of sales. Okay, I'm going to try and put some distance between us because I do think there's some categories that we might be closer on later on. So I'm going to try and put some distance between us before we go through those. Let's do charts. Where did Purple Rain chart in the US, please? Number one. Oh, okay, number one as well. All right, that's a draw. Fair enough. What about the UK? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm genuinely surprised. Um, number seven. What? Yeah. Fucking Britain in the 80s, honestly. A bet. Oh, fucking hell. Nick Rhodes, what a prick. His fault. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to say, I bet they were buying Duran Duran Nichols instead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your favourite. Thrill, I got to number one in the UK, so uh, I've I've won that one. Hey, where do we go? So that's three down. I'm going to introduce some jeopardy into things now, and I'm going to go accolades. Rolling Stone rated Thriller at number 20 in 2003 and 2012 in its top 500 albums list, and number 12 in 2020, the most recent list. Wow. What do you have for me in terms of the Rolling Stone lists, please? Start off badly and get a little worse. In the three Rolling Stone polls, he was number 72 in 2003, so it's not looking good. He was 76 in 2012, was number eight in 2020. Fucking madness. Now, did anything significant involving Prince happen between 2012 and 2020? (laughs) It just goes to show what someone's death can do for their (laughs) critical reception of their art. Well, so you've won that. Surprisingly. But we've got two categories left. You could you could still draw, so, but it's your choice. Go on, you pick. We have left certifications and ratings. Well, I'm going to get absolutely annihilated on certifications if we just go on pure sales. So I'll go with ratings as I've got a pretty strong hand. Okay. But I suspect that I may lose. Uh, so the ratings I've got, all music, 5 out of 5. Pitchfork, 10 out of 10. Rolling Stone, the bunch of bastards, gave me four out of five. Oof. Now, this is real tension here. All music, five out of five. Rolling Stone, four out of five. Ooh. So it's all on Pitchfork. 7.2 out of 10. What? <laughs> I know. It's fucking madness. Anyway, so you've won that. I'm genuinely, genuinely staggered. Well, there you go. So three two, so you can you can draw. I mean, you're not you're not going <laughs> to. No, but go no, on. We, but we we all know. So we'll do certifications. We all know you're going to win. So in the UK, it only went two times platinum. It went uh, thirteen times platinum in the US, though. Okay, I have a thirteen times platinum on my list. <laughs> That's the UK. That was in the UK, though. <laughs> uh, in the US, <laughs> thirty-three times platinum. Yeah, it's not gone well. It is not the best-selling album of all time in the US. That is the Eagles' greatest hits. America, sort yourselves out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, both of these albums have got loads of other certifications in loads of other countries, but we'd be here all night. Yeah. So, so yes, I've won the Top Trumps round. I've redeemed myself after my absolute mauling a couple of weeks ago. Good. So that's put Thriller on a good standing to start things off with. Yes, indeed it has. Damn it. Well, yeah, but as we discussed last time, the most important part of the clash is what we think of them. So, you know, put that out of your mind now because the best is yet to come. Right. Shall we get into Thriller? Yeah, let's do it. It was Michael Jackson's sixth studio album. 
uh, it was released on the 30th of November 1982 on Epic Records. It was produced by Quincy Jones, who'd also produced Off the Wall. It was recorded at Westlake Recording Studios in Los Angeles between April and November 1982. I mean, it was an ambitious project right from the start. In 2007, in an interview with Ebony magazine, Michael Jackson said, I wanted to make an album where every song was a killer. Quincy Jones, according to Bruce Swedeen, told the team in the studio, "Okay, guys, we're here to save the recorded music industry. No pressure then, fellas. No, no, you know, like, um, to keep your jobs, you've got to do pretty well here. <laughs> I mean, in relation to the the quote from, from Michael Jackson, he wanted every song to be, to be a killer because he felt Off The Wall had underperformed. Now, I love Off The Wall. I think it's a great album. But the reason he felt it underperformed was because he didn't win a Grammy. I mean, he made up for it, as we just said. <laughs> but he felt he felt undervalued by the music industry. And boy, after this, they fucking valued him because he was the cash cow. Oh, yes. Now, the sessions themselves were, let's say, quite grueling. The production team were basically working round the clock. There was a making-off documentary in, in 2010 on the BBC. And on, on that, Quincy Jones said, we would stay up for five days and five nights. The passion drives you. They would carry the second engineers out on stretches. The musicians, too. I mean, I'm not so sure those working practices would be accepted nowadays, Quincy. I mean, like, considering it was the 80s as well and the unions were stronger at that point, you would have thought that the engineers' union would have been having a word saying, do you know what, like, come on, lad. Yeah, but Kev, this was one of Reagan's America, so, you know. True. True that. <laughs> and, and just before just before you go on, um, it is something we will talk about when we uh, speak next week about Purple Rain. The length of the sessions and the prodigious work rate required to put this album together is something they both share because as we know that there are potentially thousands of songs that Prince still had still had recorded and was working on and, and that his his work rate was like legendary. And obviously yeah. this is something that's reflected in, in the recording of Thriller as well. Definitely. So in terms of the songs on the albums, there's nine tracks that made it to the album. Four of them were written by Michael Jackson himself. They are Wanna Be Starting Something, The Girl Is Mine, Beat It and Billie Jean. The other five were written by songwriter Rod Temperton. So in, in his 2001 autobiography, Quincy Jones said that Rod Temperton and I listened to nearly 600 songs before picking out a dozen that we liked. So it's interesting you talk about Michael Jackson writing four songs because he had a very different work, not, ne- not necessarily ethic, a working style to everyone else. So he didn't write the songs on paper. He huh? No, he dictated them into a sound recorder and then he would sing, he would sing his songs from memory, which is fucking nuts that as a way nuts. to work, but also shows how, like, obviously... His his amazing his amazing ability, and as like the four songs he wrote on the album, they're not bad. They are not bad songs to to stick your name to. Nope. So I had no idea about that writing style, but I do want to call back to when we were going through the idiot a, a few clashes back. We talked about the way Iggy Pop had written the lyrics to nightclubbing and something which Bowie then copied when he was doing Heroes, practically improvising them on the studio floor. And here's another really innovative way of writing songs, which just speaks to the immense talent that these guys all have to just 
And we said it when we were going through Pet Sounds the other week. How many of these songs are written in? Like, oh, we did it in 10 minutes on the back of a fag packet. I was just on the studio floor making it all up. It's like, like these minds are, we just cannot contemplate of the genius that they have. Absolutely. You've, you've just referenced Brian Wilson. You've re- referenced Iggy. You've, you know, th- there's a reason that they are legendary in the music business. And Michael Jackson, not, not bad at the music. No, not bad at all at the music. All right, I'm going to do another callback to our last clash as well. So we we talked on both Pet Sounds and Peppers around the recording budgets and how one took the record for the most expensive ever, ever album and then the other beat that. The budget for the recording sessions for Thriller ran to $750,000. Adjusted for inflation today, that's $2.1 million. I mean, you've got to have confidence like with that kind of budget. You, you, yeah, precisely. You've got to have confidence and you've got to know, you've got to, you've got to have the vision of what you want to create as well and, uh, and have the balls to stick to it. Yeah, definitely. Was some of the, that budget, because I know that Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson both returned to the songs to remix them and to... Yeah. So, yes, basically. Bear with me on that because I'm coming to that in a moment, but you're absolutely right. So... And again, we were talking about innovative recording techniques and, and, and visionaries in the studio. Quincy Jones, knowing what Michael had set out as the vision for the album, Quincy Jones would basically get the engineers to play the songs on tiny little radio speakers in the studio rather than the massive studio monitors where fucking everything's going to sound good. He'd make them play it on tinny, shitty speakers because that's the way the record buying public would be listening to the music when they first heard it on the radio. And he figured if we get it right on these sorts of speakers, it'll sound good on any sound system. Like again, that vision, that clarity of thought is just incredible. Well, and I, and I suppose that the the legacy of of Quincy Jones's vision really there is not necessarily a, a, pos- a development that I'm particularly positive about, but you can certainly say modern pop music is designed to be played out of a speaker of a mobile phone now. Yep. It's it's quite tinny. The bass is very low in the mix because mm-hmm. obviously yep. a speaker that small isn't gonna isn't gonna be able to pick it up. And that's that's obviously a legacy of what Quincy Jones realized you needed to do to make this so successful. Okay, so after they'd recorded nine songs for the album, Quincy Jones decided four of them weren't good enough, so they were binned off. They were replaced by Human Nature, PYT, and Lady in My Life, but Quincy Jones still wanted that something more. So he said that to Michael, can you give us one more track? And um, Michael Jackson went away, and he wrote, Beat It. I mean, talk about achieving and accomplishing the brief you are given. Yes, you have you have very much achieved the brief. Uh, well done, Michael. <laughs> okay, so so beat it was the last song that was recorded on the album, and that same day they finished recording beat it in the morning and mixing beat it. Then they sent the album away for a test pressing. The test pressing came back later that day, and they listened to it, and basically it sounded shite. It was basically too long to fit on a standard LP. So they had to make the grooves smaller, which meant the sound was thin and tinny, and it just sounded crap. Apparently, Jackson was devastated. He, in that BBC documentary, talks about basically going into another room and just, just sobbing to himself because he's like, we spent all this money. I've got this vision of this great album, and it fucking sounds awful. So 
that's where Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson then went back into the studio and remixed every single track. Well, every track apart from The Girl Is Mine, because by that time that had already been released as a single. So yeah, they basically painstakingly remixed eight tracks, one a day over eight days. And again, working day and night. Uh, and they, they finally finished mixing the album on the 8th of November, 82, just three weeks before it was it was released. So fucking talk about being up to the wire. Christ, yeah. I mean, that's that's like that um, Cyberpunk 2077 or whatever it was called. That <laughs> there was supposed to be the the absolute future of video games and basically like they'd written it all on the back of a fag packer. Except that this wasn't. <laughs> yeah, this, this one they decided, this is shit. Let's go back and do it again. All right, before we go on to how... Did I discover the album? Can I do uh, the next episode in the um, Michael Jackson and Prince rivalry, please? I would like more beef. Okay. Chapter two, I call The Limo Unpleasantness. (laughs) So it is alleged, and I emphasize alleged, that immediately following the James Brown gig in LA, Prince was so embarrassed, humiliated, and enraged by what had happened, that he actually tried to run Michael Jackson over in his limo after the gig. <laughs> <laughs> so Quincy Jones claimed that was true in an interview with GQ. He said, Michael knows shit. He was there. He said that was his intention. Of their rivalry in general, Michael Jackson said, he feels like I'm his opponent. I hope he changes because, boy, he's going to get hurt. He's the type that might commit suicide or something. I've now got a vision of the two of them in a very different rivalry. So it's a Mr. McMahon, Stone Cold uh, style, style rivalry. <laughs> so, so in my head, after Michael gets burned at, uh, doing the Pepsi advert, Prince Prince turns up and starts beating him with a uh, bedpan. But then Michael Jackson turns up at a Prince gig and starts spraying him with, with Pepsi from a massive truck. Yes. And then, and then Prince films fills Michael Jackson's limo with concrete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of those things happen. Prince 316. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. This goes all the way up to chapter seven. That was chapter two. Loving the beef. All right. How did you discover Thriller? Uh, we, grew, we both grew up in the 80s. So you couldn't not be aware of Thriller. So my cousin was a huge Michael Jackson fan. She t- she'd stayed up and taped uh, the Thriller video off uh, Channel 4 when it was first, like when it, they did the worldwide, worldwide release, and she'd watch that video endlessly. So whenever we go to my cousins and there was any music on, she would always find a way to stick Thriller on. So from a very young age, that this was part of my part of my life and has been ever since, really. Yeah, my story is very, very similar to that, to be honest. I've known about Thriller for as long as I can remember. Um, my brother's a few years older than me. And I distinctly remember him getting a vinyl copy of Bad when it first came out in 87. And I know that by that time, I was very familiar with Thriller. I can't pinpoint exactly when I first heard it, but yeah, you couldn't escape Thriller through the mid-80s when we were kids. Okay, uh, artwork. It's, it's, a, it's an iconic album cover because of the fact that the album sold so so many copies. So it's got Michael Jackson reclining in a white suit, a white suit which belonged to the photographer Dick Zimmerman. Now, 
if you open the inner gatefold, if you've got the vinyl version, which I do, the inner gatefold image shows a very similar picture with a tiger on Michael Jackson's leg. Zimmerman claimed the reason the tiger was there and not on the front cover is because Michael Jackson had refused to let the tiger cub anywhere near his face because he thought he might be scratched. But the special edition of the album that was released in 2001, the cover of that was another photo from the same shoot, which clearly shows Michael Jackson hugging the tiger cub right by his face. So, um, Dick Zimmerman, I'm calling bollocks. Yeah, because there is literally photographic proof to prove that you're talking out your ass. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> okay, um, just before we start going through the tracks on the album, I do think it's it's time that we at least acknowledge the troublesome side of Michael Jackson's character. And, and this is something I absolutely don't want to dwell on at all. But we always do acknowledge things like this, and it's important we do now. One can't have... Uh, escaped the allegations and the accusations that have surrounded Michael Jackson's personal life. All I will say is it's clear he was a very troubled character. It's clear that he had a very difficult upbringing, to put it mildly, and that that certainly affected his behaviour later in life. I'm not going to talk any more about specifics. All I would say is that I would recommend anyone goes and watches the documentary Leaving Neverland from 2019. It's a tough watch. Don't get me wrong, it's not an easy watch, but I think it's important. I think the only, I think the only thing that I can really, really say is that the, there are very few people in the world who are not aware of the, of the allegations. As Tim says, watch the documentary, come to your own conclusion. I have mine, Tim has his. Okay, uh, and, we'll, and we'll leave that there, I think. All right. We now leave Wokey Hole and go to Wanna Be Starting Something. Wow. Oh, yeah. So a couple of facts. It was uh, This is one of the songs, as I said, that Michael Jackson wrote himself. It was the fourth single to be released from the album on May the 8th, 1983. It reached number five in the US, number eight in the UK, and number one in the Canada and in the Netherlands. Uh, it was originally recorded in 1978 for Off the Wall, but it was re-recorded for the Thriller sessions and obviously eventually included on Thriller. I mean, you can tell that it was, for me, you can tell it was originally recorded in 78 because it's the most off-the-wall sounding thing on this album. So <laughs> and also we've done we've gone down Wokey Hole, so tick for your for your bingo. I'm now going to um, essentially say verbatim back in my <laughs> notes something that Tim has just said or vice versa. Clear link back to Off the Wall uh, due to the disco-like sound. So I, I hadn't had noted that it was it was recorded for those sessions, but yeah, you can. It's the, and I think it, I think it works really well as an opener to that album because it you it links back to Off the Wall, so you you still have. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. In that respect, I think it's a good choice as the opener. It acts as a bridge between the two albums. <laughs> the hive mind is back. Fucking Borg mind here. <laughs> this is ludicrous. It's a really good song, this. It's I think great. I love it. The beat is 80s as hell, but it's so catchy. It gets the feet tapping. It's got a great hook. It's, I love it. I, I do have a fact about it, which I will come to, but my notes on the song itself. Funky, joyous, great. Also, methinks the Miami Sound Machine may have heard this song. <laughs> <laughs> 
this song, or, or maybe another song, is that the fact that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> well, indeed, yes. Um, so the coda at the end uh, was taken from Cameroonian saxophonist uh, Mano, and I apologise for the uh, p- potential rubbish pronunciation, Dabango's 1972 song, Soul Makosa. Dabango himself uh, sued in 1986 and they settled for one million francs and no future royalties. And no songwriting credit either. Yeah. So, I mean, Michael Michael obviously had earned a few quid and we'll, I'll definitely talk about that quite soon. <laughs> so I've said that the Mama Say refrain, it, it's the catchiest bit in the whole song. It's I, fucking I, great. It's no surprise. He nicked it to be honest because it is. It's fucking great. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, can I do me who sampled stuff? Sure, go on. All right, this has been sampled 75 times by a, let's say, diverse range, range of artists, including Rihanna, fair enough, Kanye West, fair enough, Bloodhound Gang, hmm? Ooh. and getting his second mention on Album Clash, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, Kev, we are doing Shaquille versus Andy Cole. Um, this is a really good song. I like it a lot. It's brilliant. It, it's such a brilliant opener. Okay, shall we go on to Baby Be Mine? Sure, let's do it. So this is one of only two songs on this album that was not released as a single. So nine tracks, seven singles. I mean, talk about maximising revenues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a fairly simple sort of R&B love song. Michael Jackson basically expressing his adoration for his dream woman and asking her to be my girl all the time. This one's been only sampled 23 times, uh, including by Snoop Dogg and Tupac Shakur. I, I quite like this. It's another quite quite retro disco sound to it, um, particularly the bass line. you got very 80s synths. Yeah, I, I quite like this song. So I, I mean I didn't have a huge amount to say about this song. I thought it was an it was a really good funky opening, and it's yeah it's a it's a good solid as you say sort of disco inspired um, pop song. The only thing I, I, I do want to say on this is the guitar part very Nile Rodgers. Yeah, Nile doesn't play on this, but he but definitely the influence is there. Sorry, yes, Nile Rodgers does not appear on this album, but the, there is a definite influence in in a lot of the guitar playing. One of the few albums in the 80s that he didn't actually play on. <laughs> Fuck, that man was prolific. I mean, like, he's thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to do Thriller. I'll do Let's Dance instead. He probably wasn't asked to do Thriller, but still, he was asked to do Let's Dance, and, well, we know my opinion on that. At some point, we will do Let's Dance, because I'm not as a guinea as you are. <sighs> do we have to? It's not as bad an album as you think. Like, the next, the album after that is not good. Uh, I've got nothing else to say. Shall we move on to The Girl Is Mine? Yes, because uh, I do have things to say on this. Yeah, so do I. Okay, so it's a duet with Paul McCartney. It was the first single released from the album, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it released in October of 82. It reached number two in the USA. It reached number eight in Spain. Uh, apparently, it was Quincy Jones's idea for Michael Jackson to write a song about two men quarrelling over the same woman. Uh, but it was Michael Jackson who had the idea to bring McCartney on board. So in his 1988 book, Moonwalk, Michael said that he had visited Paul McCartney at his ranch in Tucson, Arizona. He spent a few days rehearsing and just shooting the shit, basically, with, with Paul. Uh, so he's quoted, he said, when I approached Paul, I wanted to repay the favour he'd done me and girlfriend. 
Uh, so Girlfriend from Off the Wall was written by Paul McCartney. Working with Paul McCartney was pretty exciting. We just literally had fun. Michael Jackson also featured on uh, Say, Say, Say and The Man on Paul McCartney's uh, album, The Pipes of Peace, which is not a good album. No, not a good album. And I, I really don't like Say, Say, Say. I think it's a terrible song. So a further, a further part to the quote from Michael Jackson that, that you brought up there, he also says, uh, we actually recorded the track and the vocals pretty much live at the same time. I'm not I'm not a fan of this song. No. I don't like it. But I, I do have beef to bring, and it is not Prince beef. Oh, go on. So, obviously, as, we, as you mentioned, McCartney and um, Michael Jackson had had a working relationship that had developed from uh, Off the Wall and obviously onto McCartney's album and onto Thriller. The pair later fell out. Do you know why? Oh, is this about uh, publishing rights? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So Michael Jackson, a couple of years after the release of this, and probably because of a lot of the money that was made because of this, <laughs> paid $47.5 million to buy the Beatles back catalogue. Paul McCartney, not best pleased about this, particularly as he was the one who told Michael about the auction in the first place. <laughs> So the, the reason that McCartney didn't buy the Beatles back catalogue was simply because he couldn't afford it because of the bidding at the time when he told uh, Michael Jackson about it was at 30-odd million dollars at that point. And if you think 30-odd million dollars in 1985... Or, it's a fair few quid. It's a, it's a lot of money that... Um, so he, he, didn't have the, he didn't have the money for it and neither did Yoko or they, they weren't going to club together for it. Can't imagine why. So speaking about beef... <laughs> <laughs> so they um they fell out and never never really spoke again after after this they did not uh i don't like this song no and um, whose decision was this to be the lead single yeah the other there are other songs on here that definitely should lead out the album i, I mean, mean I, I know it, mccartney brings star power but like it's it sounds to me at times like a cheesy theme tune to a bad 80s mismatch odd couple style sitcom. <laughs> like that bit where they start talking to each other, it's so fucking forced and cringe it's cringy. God, yeah. I hate it. I hate this song. It's not great. And it, it feels like a real step down. Massive. You've opened with such a banger. And like the second song, it's not amazing, but we but we like it. You've you've taken the jam from me donut. <laughs> But can I put the jam back in your donut, please? Very much so. Right. So before I do, I'm I'm just going to say this now. We're probably going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the next three songs. We just are. So before we before we start talking about them, can you think of a better run of songs on an album? Because I like I genuinely can't. Off the top of my head, the only run of three songs. I can think that comes close to this is the first three tracks on Joshua Tree. But even then, as good as these three, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, what we're talking about is that they're, they're not just three great songs. We're talking three classics. These, these are three of the greatest pop songs ever made yeah. that you have in a run. Yep. So uh, let's start going through the first one of those, which is the album's title track, Thriller. The seventh and final single from the album. Why would you hold it back? I know. 
especially with some of the others, well, one of which we've just talked about. Uh, it was released on the 23rd of February, 84, reached number four in the USA, number 10 in the UK, and at number one in France and Spain. Well done, France and Spain. Well done, France and Spain. You have put this song in the correct position in your charts. Like, number 10 in the UK. What was number one instead of that? <sighs> I don't know what it was, like Joe Dolce. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Thriller, written by Rod Temperton. It began life as a song called Starlight. Uh, and the chorus lyric was Give Me Some Starlight, Starlight Sun. Quincy Jones loved the groove, loved the melody. He wanted it to be the title track of the album, but he didn't think Starlight was a strong enough title. I agree with him. Yeah. In an interview uh, with M Magazine in 2012, Rod Temperton said, Starlight just wasn't good enough. It had to be something mysterious to match Michael's evolving persona. One night I came up with Midnight Man. Quincy said I was going in the right direction, but it still wasn't right. They eventually agreed on Thriller, obviously. And again, here we go. this is another one of these examples. After that, Rod Temperton said, once I had the title, the lyrics were written within a couple of hours. Fuck off. <laughs> it's not fair. Once you know it, though, that's the thing. Like That's what we keep hearing is the... Once you get, once you know it's a hit, then it's a hit. Yeah, very true. So the end of the song very famously has a guest appearance by Vincent Price, the horror legend. So again, Rod Temperton of Vincent Price's involvement said, I had always envisioned a talking section at the end, but I didn't really know what to do with it. Quincy Jones's wife, Peggy Lipton, uh, she suggested that she ask her friend, Vincent Price, if he wanted to do it. So Quincy Jones said, uh, Rod wrote a brilliant Edgar Allan Poe spiel. And Vincent really understood it. Vincent did it in two takes. Phenomenal. Yeah. So my my notes on, on this, like, so I did my research and that, but to be honest, I knew you'd find lots of quotes on it. So I looked for the ephemera because I like the ephemera. <laughs> the howls on the song. Um, so they did initially try it with a dog, but the dog wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't make the right sound. <laughs> Do you know what the howls of the beasts on the song are? I assume they were just stock Hollywood sound effects. They are performed by Michael Jackson. I did not know that. That's brilliant. And the door sounds are from specially rented doors that were taken from the Universal Studio sound lab. <laughs> Have you got any squeaky doors for us? Yeah, they literally just like, can we get like your squeakiest doors, please? <laughs> I could just imagine some some gelatin now going, yeah, but let me get some WD-40 on them first. No, no, no. Well, just let us tighten, tighten up the screws at least. Come on, let's do in me head in. <laughs> It's the second time we've mentioned WD-40 on Album Crash. <laughs> if you want to send us some free WD-40, I'll, I'll spray some nuts. <laughs> I mean, I really don't want you to be spraying your nuts. Thank you very much. <laughs> Shall we talk about the video? Uh, I mean, the, the, the video is fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, wow. Well, yeah. We could almost do a fucking podcast by the video itself. Yeah. So, directed by John Landis, who uh, directed Animal House, The Blues Brothers, and American Werewolf in London, which is why Michael Jackson got him to direct the video to Thriller, because he'd seen American Werewolf in London. He was 
amazed as everyone was at the time and still are today at the scene where the transformation scene where, mm-hmm. where the lead character trans- transforms into the werewolf because it's fucking incredible. Michael Jackson wanted to uh, have a video in which he transformed into a monster. John Landis was quite conscious that he, he was still directing a pop music video and that, you know, Michael Jackson, a bit of a dancer. So he said, I was adamant that whatever he was going to turn into, he couldn't be too hideous or unattractive. Scary, yes. Creepy, yes. But not ugly. I ultimately suggested Michael turn into a wolfman, hence the 1950s setting in Thriller's movie within the movie. So just to, to talk about the, the, the story, the plot of the video, if you like, it starts with Michael Jackson and his date. They're in a 1950s setting. The car runs out of gas. So they walk into the woods. Don't fucking walk into the woods. You're not going to find a <laughs> petrol station in the woods, are you, for Christ's sake? When they walk into the woods, Michael Jackson turns into a werewolf. At that point, you cut to a 1980s cinema, and we see that, that Michael Jackson and his girlfriend, played by Alva Ray, they're watching the film in the cinema. She gets scared of that scene, so they leave. Michael Jackson's basically a dick, trying to scare her all the time. <laughs> they pass by a graveyard. The undead start to arrive from their graves, and Michael Jackson turns into a zombie. And iconic dancing ensues. So... I told you there could be a podcast on this video all by itself. I'm still going on. Stop me if you got it, want to interject, Kev. I mean, there's so much that you can say about this, about the video, the look, the um, group choreography. This, this video is so iconic. There are literally prisoners in the Philippines doing a group dance to it that you can see you can see videos on YouTube. It's just phenomenal. It's it's the first music video that was ever inducted into the National Film Registry due to its cultural significance. That's how important this is. Exactly. It, and it, it absolutely revolutionized the music video. There were certainly, you know, iconic videos before that, but it became essentially an art form after this. So in the in the aftermath of this, you get like your sledgehammer. You get you get money all, for nothing. Yeah, you get all these these amazing videos, and this broke broke the boundary really of what you yeah. could do and what you should do for a video. And it fucking made MTV. Fuck yeah! The budget for the video nine hundred thousand dollars for a fucking video. That's huge. So unsurprisingly, it was the most expensive video ever made. It it, it nearly never got made because of the budget, and uh, it ended up partially being funded by MTV, who also paid $250,000 to secure exclusive rights to the making of documentary that was launched at the same time. They made their money back because the VHS of the video sold over a million copies. I mean, the video is a cultural phenomenon in itself. And it, as you said, changed the landscape of music videos. It launched MTV and it propelled Michael Jackson into the fucking stratosphere. And I mean, we haven't even haven't even described the song or what we feel about the song. And I mean, how do, how do you fucking? I don't have a superlative strong enough. No, it's just perfect. It's yep. it's amazing. It's beautifully layered. Everything everything's right about it. Even even the ending, like having a spoken word ending, like and it's still absolutely perfect. And I'm sorry if like you hear Thriller come on and you can't and like you don't do the li- at the very least. 
the little head jerk as you're walking along, then you're dead. You are dead inside because... <laughs> or not dead. <laughs> <laughs> because, because you can't help it. Or just do like the little hand hand thing. Like, it, yeah. Yeah, my God. My God. As you said, perfect. So I'm going I'm to try and describe it in the context of what we've already heard on the album. So you started off with a, a really good song, but very much a callback to, to what Michael Jackson had done before. Then a, a, a much sort of 80s style disco song. Fine. Then you've had The Girl Is Mine, which neither of us liked. But again, it's very much of its era. And then this comes on right from the start, right with that creaky door and the footsteps. And then the organ comes in. This makes you sit up and take notice. This is different. It, it's timeless, this yeah, it still sounds fresh. Nearly forty years later, it's still brilliant. It it doesn't matter how many times you hear it; it's still brilliant. Yeah, I just want to talk about a couple of musical elements. The fucking bassline—it's just funky as hell. <laughs> so, for the listeners' benefit, I just uh, pointed to him my note. I didn't even write funky; I just wrote iconic. This is a glorious song, and as you said, Vincent Price comes in at the end. And just fucking knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Boom. Uh, one more thing I want to say. Ian Brown covered this. Uh, it was a B-side to Golden Gaze. I quite liked it, to be honest with you. It wasn't great, but it was fine. I have heard some of his others. So the next song, in fact, that we will... Yeah. Uh, I've heard his cover of it. I've never heard his Thriller cover, I'll, I'll have to say. It's all right. It's fine. Okay. Okay. So we both like Thriller. Yeah, just a bit. And side one is complete. That's... The end of side one. Shall we flip over the disc onto side two? Yeah, because we're we're gonna get into some good stuff now. Not that the last song was bad. I was gonna say <laughs> now. <laughs> All right, beat it. It was the third single from the album. It was released on the 14th of February 1983. It reached fucking number one everywhere. Uh apart from the UK, where it got to number three. Fucking hell. Fucking UK. Uh obviously it's got the legendary guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen in this. As I mentioned earlier, when the album was nearing completion, both Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones felt it needed something else. Quincy Jones, a quote from him from an interview with Rolling Stone in 2009, he said the album needed a song like My Sharona, a black version of a strong rock and roll thing. Michael Jackson himself said, I'd been thinking I wanted to write the type of rock song that I would go out and buy. And then going back to Quincy Jones, he said, when Michael wrote Beat It, we knew he'd come up with nitroglycerin. And he had. Oh, yeah. So before we talk about the song, the video, I'm going to just throw in a little bit of ephemera because, to be honest, that's all I can add to these songs. (laughs) So the bar location in the video, that also has a history in the rock pantheon. Do you know where? I do not. So the bar location of the start of the video was on the Doors album, Morrison Hotel. So it's on the gatefold and the back. Oh, well, there you go. Very interesting. Yeah, you you know, so I I do have these occasional interesting moments. It's also one of the best-selling singles of all time. Seven million copies, the the single. (laughs) No wonder he could buy the Beatles back (laughs) catalogue. He could have bought the Beatles, for Christ's sake. (laughs) Or at least he could have bought Ringo, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in terms of the involvement of Eddie Van Halen, it was basically Quincy Jones' idea. 
uh, and, and when he contacted Eddie Van Halen to, to say, do you fancy being on a Michael Jackson song? Eddie Van Halen thought it was a prank call. So he um, Which, to be kept fair. banging up on him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fair play. He refused payment for the session and he said that he did it as a favour. Fair play. So the recording took five days of solid working, again, day and night, as we said earlier. And apparently at one point, Quincy Jones said that the speakers in the studio overloaded and caught fire. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, just have a break then, Quincy. That's telling you something, surely. So essentially, Eddie Van Halen did the thing that Michael J. Fox uh, did at the start of uh, Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... Okay, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson both spoke there about wanting to do something different, wanting to make a rock song. And if you think back to 1982, this was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got a, I'm, I'm full of quotes today. So that same Rolling Stone article I mentioned from 2009, the chairman of Def Jam Records, L.A. Reid, he said, today we do things called mashups, right? Take Linkin Park and Jay-Z and put it together it's certainly unique, but it's not unusual. I mean, that doesn't make any grammatical sense, but we'll move on from that. But at the time, to go back to the quote, but at the time, Eddie Van Halen was at the top of his game and he fit right in on Beat It. It didn't feel like a guitar solo over some R&B track. It was very organic. I completely agree. So it goes without saying, Eddie Van Halen fucking shreds it on that guitar solo, and it doesn't sound like a bolt-on. It doesn't sound out of place. It does sound organic. It fits perfectly. Yeah, and I think I think what you've also got to got to recognise as well is that, like, no beat it. Uh, you don't get walk this way. Rock has become very white for a long time, and Michael Jackson essentially enabled black artists to reclaim what was formerly theirs. Do you know what? That's absolutely spot on. You're dead, right? It wasn't a case of let's cross over into white music. It was, this is fucking our music and we'll have it back. Thanks. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. (laughs) Okay. You mentioned the video. Let's talk about that for a little bit, though. Not for as long as we did about for. (laughs) So this was a much cheaper video, only $150,000. Michael Jackson paid for it himself because CBS refused to finance it. Um, yes, and he also... <laughs> I mean, this is fucking wild when you when you realise it, and I'm sure you're... Are you talking about some of the extras in the Yes, video? I am. <laughs> so they enlisted Bloods and Crips, um, <laughs> who, um, if you're not aware, were two LA gangs um, and got them involved in... <laughs> In the video, I thought it's fucking Mad, nuts. It? it is nuts. I mean, it's almost—it's almost as nuts as um, this, the Stones' decision to have the the Hell's Angels as security at Altamont. <laughs> Although that obviously had a very different. Um, I was going to say that didn't work out quite so well. <laughs> um, so yeah, the video was filmed in in the, the famous or infamous, I should say, Skid Row in LA. It has often been stated that it was inspired by West Side Story, but director Bob Giraldi said that that was bollocks. I mean, he didn't say it was bollocks, but he said it wasn't inspired by West Side Story. I mean, it was. Yeah, it definitely was. (laughs) You just didn't want to get sued. Uh, Okay, so you hear that, the opening synth part, then that drum beat kicks in. Then they get the guitar. If it takes me right back to my childhood, yeah, it fucking hell. 
and and again it's it talks to like how iconic the video is when you when you hear the song at, at least certainly for me you can't help but doing that kind of um as though you're dealing cards out with your clicking fingers yeah, yeah yeah you just you can't you can't help yourself but just to do a little bit of it like yep that's that's the influence of and the iconography of the, of this i mean it's unmistakable it's one of the most iconic guitar riffs yeah of all time and what a solo fuck it well as i said it just fucking shreds it and yeah. to me it does it, it did sound organic yeah not jarring at all one last thing to say to bring things down slightly the reprehensible fallout boy did a cover of this song in 2008 and when i heard it a little part of me died and Amazingly, it's not even their worst cover of a famous 80s song. I think we should just move on. Do you know what other cover of a famous 80s song I'm talking about? I don't, I don't want to know. I do. So I'm going to know. You're going to know. You're going to know. They did the theme tune for the equally reprehensible remake of Ghostbusters in 2016. How, how, does your, how do you look upon your life now that you know that fact? I mean, it's not enriched it. Uh, do yourself a favour and don't ever listen to it. I'm not going to. Have you ever heard Fall Out Boy's version of Beat It? No. And I do not want to. Don't. Don't. A dreadful band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that they were, they were still having enough cachet to do a song in 2016, to be honest. But there you go. Well, I think, I think many people were anyway. <laughs> Beat It is a good song. Yes. Uh, as is the next one. Fucking banger. I, I get so so you complete the trilogy of bangers. Fucking you're on to Billy Jean. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a I mean, what a what a trilogy. It's the Toy Story trilogy. <laughs> Does that mean human nature's Toy Story 4? Because that fits actually, because I'm not a fan of Toy Story 4. I mean, yeah, yeah, like in terms of like those three songs are absolutely perfect, as the Toy Story trilogy is perfect. Human nature is is a flawed song. Um, well, we'll come on to that. We'll yeah. come on to human nature. Billy Jean. All right, facts first. Second single, released on January the second, eighty three. It basically got to number one everywhere. So even in the UK this time. So so early nineteen eighty three UK record playing public. Well done. What happened to you for the rest of eighty three and into eighty four? Uh, um, because we're going to come on to you next week as well. You ain't got to, you, you know, you're not out of the woods just on Thriller. No. So, you know, we're, we're coming for you next week. It was another one written by Michael Jackson, as I said earlier. And there's an interesting story yeah. or alleged story, perhaps we say, about, about what the song's about. So, well, no, it's clearly a song about being falsely accused of fathering someone's child. Uh, and there's a lot of sort of conflicting reports about exactly what inspired it and whether Billie Jean was a real person. So Michael originally claimed that that she was real and that she'd written to him and she sent him a weapon and given him instructions on, on how to kill himself. She would do the same and, and kill their, their child and they'd be together in the afterlife. So Rolling Stone's Jerry Hershey said that she'd seen a photograph of her in Michael Jackson's dining room. And he'd said that I want to memorize her face in case she ever does turn up somewhere. He later contradicted that again in Moonwalk, where he said there was never a real Billie Jean. The girl in the song is a composite of people we've been plagued by over the years. And then to muddy the waters further, Quincy Jones said in his 2001 book, 
that it was about a girl who climbed over the wall and invaded the place. She accused him of being the father of one of her twins, which is quite remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, that's that's probably tickled me now. Um... (laughs) All right, so so there are some conflicting stories there. What is clear is there seemed to be some basis in, 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 in reality for the song. So who knows what the truth actually is? Because I have a different quote from uh, Michael Jackson. So he, he said at one point, um, it was based on the groupies that kind of hung around him uh, when he was in the Jackson 5. So he said, there were a lot of Billy Jeans out there. Every girl claimed that their son was related to one of my brothers. And obviously, you know, because of how fa- how young he was when he got famous and... This is what he's. This is what he he grew up with, and so and obviously, you know, the there are tales of people who claim that that their son were their son was his. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the lyrics are fucking phenomenal. It's just yeah. song is so lyrically deep. Just that that the line, "Be careful what you do, because the lies become the truth." Like, it just tells you everything you need to know about the song. It's fucking phenomenal. Again, it's just it's brilliant. It's. It is brilliant. It's got, well, we talked about one of the most iconic guitarists ever on the last song. It's one of the most iconic bass lines of all mm-hmm. time here. That groove, that beat. It just starts it, it. It starts it so well and like it hooks you straight away. Yeah, it does. So it's one of the best selling singles of all time. Sold 10 million copies. And before before we even get onto another iconic video. <laughs> The performance of the song on the Motown 25 TV special is essentially what, not like this album establishes Michael Jackson's um, superstar status, but it was, I don't know, cemented, garlanded by by this performance because it's the first, during the performance of Billie Jean, it's the first time he does the moonwalk and it's the first time he wears the, the single white sequin glove. Oh, so, okay. So it basically created his image for... Madame Tussauds. Well, the rest of his career. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay, the video. So, directed by Steve Barham. And as you said, it's another iconic video. The, the, the sort of dirty street, but then the paving stones light up as he's dancing and walking along them. And I, the way he's dancing, it's... Wow. Anyone anyone who has ever been in any kind of nightclub or place where the floor lights up, you have tried to do that. Do not lie. I've never been in a nightclub where the, have you the not? floor lights up. Where have you been going? Eastern Europe. Gosh, twat. <laughs> Honestly, there's places in Eastern Europe that do it. And like, I have tried. Nah, I never, I want to, I've never been somewhere where there's a fucking piano on the floor and you can do the thing in big. <laughs> I mean, I definitely want to do that. <laughs> yes, although, of although course. we both know that I would do um, the Homer Simpson thing and slide across on my knees and absolutely <laughs> break <me>. it. <laughs> yep. Uh, and he looks cool as fuck in this video as well. It with does, that hat. Yeah. It's just it's fucking phenomenal. Just, it's great. Just amazing. And the song, the song is, it's just class. Like as as we've as we've said, it is the it is possibly one of the greatest run of songs. On any album ever. Uh, Definitely. But it nearly wasn't, allegedly. It has been suggested, although disputed by Quincy Jones, but it has been suggested by some people that he didn't think this song was strong enough to go on the album. 
what is true and what is not disputed is that so originally it had a 29 second instrumental intro quincy jones thought that was too long and what is true is that he didn't like the bass line fuck is wrong with you quincy jones so michael jackson won that argument obviously because it's a great bass line because it is a great bass line although the 29 second intro did have to be cut down when they were remixing again to get the length of the the track down uh, because of the sound quality issues that I'd mentioned earlier. But if that is true that Quincy Jones didn't think this song was strong enough, like what? No, I don't believe that. <laughs> I mean, if if he did, then obviously it's a rare misstep from him because he, he's made some yeah. great production choices on the album. So true. He, if if it's true, he 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 got he got one of the calls wrong. But fortunately for us, that Michael overruled him. Indeed. Okay. Before we move on. This is another one that's been covered by Ian Brown, as you mentioned earlier. So this was a B-side of Dolphins or Monkeys, and I've really liked his cover of this. Yeah, it is a good cover. Uh, that is one of 143 covers. Ooh. There's only one I want to bring out. Uh. <laughs> Chakademus and Pliers. Wow. Did not see that one. You didn't think I was going there, Ooh. did you? I haven't heard it, so I can't tell you if it's any good. Well, it could well be really good, who knows? I, I doubt it. <laughs> I fucking, I've got nothing. What, what a tune. Yeah. I can't, we, we said it all. What did you say about Billie Jean has not been said before? I mean, you could say it's shite, but that would be a lie. But you'd be talking, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, shall we go on to Human Nature? Yeah, I think so. This was written by... Steve Picaro of Toto. Who had a surprisingly large <laughs> element of the album. Basically, Toto play on so many tracks on this album as session musicians. He wrote this song. The lyrics were written by John Bettis. It was originally demoed to be a, a Toto song, but the band passed on it because they didn't think it fit with their sound. I can see why. Mm-hmm. So when Quincy Jones asked Steve Picaro to send some demos over... The original demo for Toto was still on the tape. And uh, so, again, I'll just quote Quincy Jones himself. Toto sent over these demos. They were okay, but we left the tape running. And at the end was all this silence. Uh, Then the tape flipped. And then there was this dummy lyric, a very skeletal thing, but such a wonderful flavor. And the song kicked in. Yeah, so that's how it came to be on the album. You really really like the sound. As I said, John Bettis then came up with the lyric. It was released as a single in the U.S., on the 3rd of July, 1983, but not in the UK. It reached number seven in the US. It has been sampled 63 times, including, you may remember, the American all-girl vocal group SWV on their hit right here in 93. Were they related to him in some way? I don't know, but there are so many offshoots of the Jackson family that it seems entirely plausible. Okay, fair enough. It has been covered 59 times, including by Miles Davis. Yeah. I uh, I mean, it's a hell of a come down yeah, from is. the three you've just heard, but maybe that's needed because you've been so high. You've had bang, 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 three in a row. Fucking hell, I'm going to explode if this carries on. Maybe a come down's needed. It is a come down. There's no, there's no question about it, but it's not, it's not a bad song. Yeah, I, I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's got another good hook. It's got a decent melody. It's pleasing on the air. It's not great by any means, but it's perfectly fine. I quite like human nature. 
yeah, it's it's fine. Okay, shall we go on to PYT? Yes, we should. Which stands for Pretty Young Thing. So this was the sixth single released. It was released on the 19th of September, 1983. It reached number 11 in the UK. And this, I'm not going to criticise the UK record by in public for that. You know, it reached number 10 in the US. It was written by Quincy Jones and James Ingram. The only track on the album on which Quincy Jones gets a songwriting credit, in fact. He says of the song, it was just another groove. I've been playing with those kind of grooves since I was with Ray Charles. The title of the song apparently is named after a brand of lingerie that Quincy Jones's wife liked. I, I, this one I don't like. So I, I disagree. Disagree okay. wholeheartedly. I've always liked uh, PYT. I'm going to give credit to the nation of Belgium, who um, it reached number six there. Um, I, I really like it. I think it's funky. It's great. It's really good to dance to. I, I love it. And Janet and Latoya provi- uh, provide backing vocals on it as well. The, I mean, obviously, each their own. I really like it. I think it's got a good. Uh, it's got a good groove to it, and I do enjoy. It. I think it's in. It's in a weird spot in between human nature and the lady in my life. It doesn't quite make sense there. No, because you've brought us down. Then you. Then you get in. Getting us funky, and then obviously we'll go on to the next. Onto the next song. The other thing I want to say is that given what we touched on earlier about Michael Jackson's private life, it's an unfortunate song title. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and the lyric, Tenderoni, you've got to be, I mean, as well as being cringingly dated, Tenderoni was apparently a slang term for a love interest who is younger than you. So wasn't aware of that. Listen, I'm not drawing any parallels or any links to anything in particular. That was a, a lighthearted comment, but I'm, I've never been hugely keen on PYT. I do like the the little sort of um, bit of uh, sort of vocoded synth vocals that come in. That's quite good. I don't dislike it. I just, it doesn't offer me anything I've not heard before. And it doesn't do it as well as what I've heard before on the album. So that's all I can say, really. Fair, fair enough. I, I have a much fonder fonder feeling for the song. Uh, it does outstay its welcome, though. Yeah, it's I, too long. I, w- I wouldn't disagree with that. It it is a little bit too long. It could it could do with losing thirty seconds, maybe a minute. Okay, shall we go on to the closer? Okay, the lady in my life, written by Rod Temperton. Not released as a single, so apparently there was an additional verse to this, but as they remixed the album to get it down to the length that it could go on a a standard LP, that verse was cut. It's a fairly simple love song uh, where Michael Jackson expresses the feelings he has for the lady in his life. What do you think? So, listening to the album again, initially, I'm not sold on it. The as as the as the song starts, and particularly because I because I like Pretty Young Thing, I don't get it as a closer, but it worms its way into you. I, I love I love the bass on it. I don't, I think it I think where it's positioned is maybe wrong, but I do I do like the song, and it it goes on a bit, but it it does work its way into into me, and I do I do end up liking it. But when it starts, I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. Okay. So I've described this as a lackluster end to the album. There is a really nice staccato synth part in the second verse, but if that's the nicest thing I can think to say about the song, it, it tells you a lot. This sounds all too redolent of a lot 
of Lionel Richie and Stevie Wonder's 80s output, and that is not a compliment. No, I mean, um, I love Stevie Wonder, as you know, um, but there's a lot of his 80s output that I'm not I'm not keen on. But there are elements that I do like, and maybe that maybe that's why I'm a little softer towards this than you. Yeah, maybe. Again, I, I can't say that. I, I'm not saying, oh, it's awful, this, I hate it. I just, when you've been so high for the middle part of this album, you can't deny there's a massive drop-off in the last three tracks. Yeah, when I suppose when you've touched the sky with three of the greatest songs ever written, that anything that comes after it is is very much a come down. Yeah. So I've got nothing else to say about Thriller. No, I'm I'm done. It's not a long album, nine tracks, but uh, well, it, it, it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah, it is. It, like the peaks it hits, the there are very few other albums that ever reach that. It's yeah. it's whether the the journey that you're taking on going up the mountain and then coming down is um, well. We'll discuss that next week about how you feel about we that. Will, we will come back to that next week, indeed. Okay, shall I go on to reviews and then a bit on Legacy? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do the sensible ones first, and then, you know... We know who's coming. <laughs> okay, so Christopher Connolly in Rolling Stone said, The superficiality of the damnably catchy hit, The Girl Is Mine, belies the surprising substance of Thriller. A zesty LP whose up-tempo workouts don't obscure its harrowing, dark messages. Jackson's new attitude gives Thriller a deeper, if less visceral, emotional urgency than any of his previous work. I, I, I can't disagree with anything he said there. No, like, it's it's bang on. In another review, John Rockwell in the New York Times, he was a bit more qualified in what he said. He said that Michael Jackson sometimes allows Quincy Jones to depersonalize his individuality with superbly crafted yet slightly anonymous production and that he hides his emotionality behind smoothly indistinctive pop songs. He did admit that those were just quibbles and he said that Thriller is a wonderful pop record, the latest statement by one of the great singers in popular music today. I can maybe see some of what he's saying there, but I, I don't agree with what he said about Quincy Jones's production, certainly. No, it, like Quincy Jones, as as we've discussed, has a a really important role in terms of the production on the on the album, and you know he brought Eddie Van Halen and like which makes uh, beat it. So yeah, like I, I disagree. Me too. Um, I guess we're gonna hear from someone we're both gonna disagree with. Yeah. So what did Nobby McGee say? So Robert Criscoll said this is virtually a hits plus filler job but at such a high level that it's almost classic anyway. But while I'm for anything that will get interracial love on the radio, Fuck off. playing buddies with McCartney is Michael's worst idea since Ben. And I expect to hear more of one of you starting something and Thriller on the dance floor than in my living room. Well, so yeah, you can fuck off about the interracial love stuff. I agree with what he said about uh, the girl is mine because neither of us like it. It's not his worst idea since Ben because he recorded on Say Say Say. So you know, <laughs> that's true. And I've always quite liked Ben as well, to be honest. <laughs> but like, and even but even the things that I kind of agree with, like he still sounds dead wanky when he says that when he says it because he can't help himself. He is a sued. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean. What to say, legacy-wise? So, so we've 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 done sales. He's had a legacy. Well, exactly. It well. So, 
It spent 37 weeks at number one on the Billboard chart. It stayed in the top 10 for over a year and was the first album ever to do so. So that's the end of the facts and stuff. I mean, it just made him the most famous person on earth. That's the legacy of this album. It changed the entire music industry. So Quincy Jones said they set out to save the recorded music industry. Mission accomplished and then some. Christ. Without Michael Jackson going nuclear, if you want, then does Epic have the same confidence to get behind Madonna in the way that it does? Mm -hmm. Do Warners have the same confidence in in Prince, to, as we will talk about next week, to put their weight behind his vision and what he wanted to achieve at that time? Uh, no and no. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's exactly the point. It, so you mentioned about royalties earlier. Even even was revolutionary in that regard. He earned $2 for every copy of this album that was sold, which was the highest rate ever achieved up to that point. And if you've done your maths, it's going to have pocketed him a fair few quid. One or two. And we're not even talking about the singles either. No, exactly. So as we said earlier, the videos, they I would say the, the, the way that Michael Jackson embraced the music video and embraced MTV was probably the biggest step change in the way music is promoted since Sgt. Pepper. Mm -hmm. It bridged genres. It pioneered the influence of R&B and black music on pop music as a genre through the 80s. And perhaps most importantly, it blazed the trail for black artists to become truly global megastars. In fact, one of the things which Michael Jackson set out to do was seize hold of what he thought was MTV in particular being too white. And that is something that just 18 months later, one Prince Rogers Nelson would very much capitalise on. Yes, very much so. And music became a visual medium from this point. Yeah. Like the Buggle song and the um, name of of one of our features, Video Killed the Radio Star. And it did, because you had to have an image. You had to, you, you couldn't present a boring music video. It had to be an event. It had to be something. You had to try and visually engage with the audience. And Michael Jackson was in, entirely responsible for that paradigm shift. Yes, he was. Okay, I, I don't have anything else to say about Thriller. No, me neither. So I suggest we go on to best song, worst song. Go on, I'll, I'll allow you to go first. So I'm going to start with worst song because it is, without question, uh, The Girl Is Mine. It's fucking dreadful. There is a part of me that dies every time I hear it. Best song out of them three. Oh, beat it. <laughs> but like, I mean, it's by a, a teenth. Yeah, you're right. It, you can you can throw a coin in the air and whichever circle it lands in, I get it. Um, so worst song, no argument, and there's nothing else to say. It's just bad. The girl is mine is a bad song. <sighs> Thriller. Thr I for everything we said, it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up every time I hear it. Thriller's the best song on this album, but again, it's by a Nats, would you? Yeah, I could easily pick any of the three of them. Yeah, but it, it doesn't matter because they're all fucking great. They are all fucking great. We'll find out next week how it fares against Purple Rain. Before we go, I would like to, for the final time on this week's show, uh, return to the beef between Prince and Michael Jackson. So chapter three is called 
we aren't the world. <laughs> so Prince refused or failed to turn up for the recording of We Are The World, which was the US... US Band-Aids. Thank you. There you go. Depending on whose account you listen to, he either failed to turn up or he refused to turn up. He was originally slated to sing the line, but if you just believe, there's no way we can fall. Yeah, he either didn't turn up because he'd been out on the piss the night before, so he'd been out partying in a Hollywood club and was hungover, so didn't turn up, or it has been suggested he refused to turn up because he uh, was pissed off that he hadn't been asked to write the song or be involved in the writing of the song, at least. Although Quincy Jones did claim that Prince had offered to play guitar on the track, which apparently was angrily refused and declined. Prince's line was ultimately sung, and again, second reference to this group on The Clash, by Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> uh, so the reason that's part of the beef is Michael Jackson wrote We Are The World, and yeah. say there's, there are suggestions that Prince wanted to be involved in the writing and felt um, shunned by not having been asked. Sidelined somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I, like, bullet dodged as far as I'm concerned. I mean, well, it was for a good cause. It was, but it's a fucking dreadful song, Kev. Yeah, it's not great. Okay, more from the Michael Jackson Prince beef story next week. Plenty more, in fact. The annals of beef. <laughs> uh, go on, tell people how they can keep in touch with us. So, as is customary... If you um, enjoy seeing uh, politicians jump on a bandwagon, then you may want to um, to get onto Twitter. And if you do so, then you can follow us at Clash Album. If you like quality content, which is uh, fantastically produced by my partner, then follow us on the Instagram, Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school and you wish to send an electronic mail, contact us at albumclash at gmail.com. It's getting to the stage now where I'm even going to welcome death threats being sent to the email. That's how <laughs> few emails we get. <laughs> I mean, it depends what hashtags we put on um, on some of the posts because <laughs> some of those Michael Jackson fans they are um, they are strongly supportive. <laughs> That's a fair point. I need to be careful what I wish for. <laughs> okay, as we've always said, if you like him, what you hear. Get involved. Tell us what you think. Even if you're not liking what you hear, why are you still here? <laughs> it's been long enough now if you decide, I don't like these two. Fuck off. Like, subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating, give us the stars. We want to be uh, front of house, telling people that uh, we've got no McFlurries left. So, uh, yeah, all that stuff. Thank you very much for listening. Honestly, guys, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. We'll see you next week where Kev's going to take us through Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. Until then, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Ta-da, take care. Ta-da, enjoy. Enjoy.